You're listening to Calvin's Institutes. Lesson 13. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. Gifts received from supporters like you help us continue this exciting work. Please partner with us so that millions all over the world can continue to receive and share in the life-changing message of the gospel. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage. That's worldwide-classroom.com. Thanks for your support. Calvin's Treatment of Repentance, Book 3, Chapter 3. And uh, not so much uh, reading for today, only 29 pages. But uh, you'll notice that um, some more hefty assignments are coming up. Christian life, that's not um, such a heavy assignment, uh, 41 pages, but in the next uh, assignment, 106 pages. So think about that. And if you can uh, get a, a bit ahead in the reading, it will make it a lot easier uh, if you can, can do that. As we come to Calvin's treatment of repentance, We'll come to the Lord in prayer using a prayer from John Calvin. Let's pray. Almighty God, we never cease to cut ourselves off from you by our sins. And yet you gently urge us to repentance and promise also to hear our prayer with favor. Grant we may not stubbornly keep in our sins and be ungrateful to your great generosity but may return to you in such a way as to witness by our lives to the genuineness of our repentance, and may so rest in you alone as to resist being buffeted hither and thither by the perverse lust of our flesh. Rather, grant we may stand firm and fast in a right purpose, and so endeavor to obey you throughout our lives at last receiving the fruit of our obedience in your heavenly kingdom, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Think about uh, repentance. It's appropriate to think about Calvin's own uh, testimony, uh, which appears in the preface to the commentary on the book of Psalms uh, that he wrote. Calvin does not often speak of himself or say too much uh, of a personal nature, very much unlike uh, Luther, who often does that. But um, in this preface to the Psalms commentary, uh, Calvin does give his testimony, and that uh, sets forth his his understanding of the Christian life. Conversion for him was the beginning of a lifelong process in which uh, God's will and purpose would be uh, supreme. Calvin says in the section of the Institutes that we'll read next, um, we're not our own. Conversely, we are God's. And his repentance was a lifelong race, as Calvin expresses it, in which he turns away from his selfishness and turns uh, to God, symbolized by that uh, motto which Calvin adopted, of the hand holding the heart, and the words, my heart, I give unto you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. So for Calvin, conversion is repentance, which is the work of the Holy Spirit, and which lasts as long as life itself. You can find the commentary on the Psalms. Calvin wrote this late in his life, but he reflects back on his early experiences and tells us uh, something at least of the factors and the events that led up to his conversion, to his repentance, and to the beginning of his Christian life. As we come to this topic, remember, we start book three with the Holy Spirit. All of book three is about the Holy Spirit. 
but there is that short chapter 1 in which uh, the Holy Spirit is set forth in the work that the Spirit accomplishes in the redeemed. And then Calvin follows that with faith, which is the principal work of the Holy Spirit. Then he says this in 3.3.19, the whole of the gospel is contained under these two headings, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Sometimes this is uh, spoken of as Calvin's double grace, repentance and forgiveness of sins. He says we can sum up uh, all of the gospel uh, under those two headings, repentance and forgiveness of sins. It's uh, important, I think, to realize how Calvin is using uh, these words uh, because we can get a bit uh, confused if we're not uh, not clear on this. Uh, Calvin will use justification in the same way that he uses reconciliation, forgiveness, acceptance. Justification equals reconciliation, forgiveness of sins, acceptance with God. That's one of the graces that he's talking about here when he says the whole of the Christian experience can be summed up uh, under these two points, forgiveness of sins and repentance. And then he uses sanctification to equal regeneration, repentance, and conversion. So these are synonyms, sanctification, regeneration, repentance, and conversion for Calvin as justification, reconciliation, forgiveness of sins, and acceptance or synonyms. The Reformed tradition has not always followed Calvin in this. Different theologians will use more precise definitions for these different terms. But as we read Calvin, I think we need to keep this in mind so that we can understand what he is saying. Calvin's double grace. Repentance, I think, is Calvin's favorite term for sanctification. He doesn't really use the word sanctification all that much, but he uses um, repentance for the, the whole process, the whole lifelong process by which God enables the sinner to turn from sin and to turn uh, to God himself and uh, progress then in holiness and we would say in sanctification. There is a more restricted meaning in later Reformed theology, but, but sometimes the lifelong process is, is preserved in Reformed theology. You can find statements in the Westminster Confession Chapter 11, chapter 13, and in the Shorter Catechism, questions 35 and questions 87, where uh, repentance is used in this broader sense. Repentance used for uh, the lifelong work of the Spirit in our hearts, uh, conforming us more and more uh, to Christ. So with those terms uh, in mind, uh, we're ready uh, to proceed uh, with Calvin, Calvin's uh, Ordo Salutis, as I call it here, his Order of Salvation. And Calvin says something uh, very important and very striking in the beginning of uh, his treatment of repentance. This is 3.3.1. He says, now both repentance and forgiveness of sins that is, newness of life and free reconciliation, that is, everything in the first group of words, everything in the second group of words, all of this, these two things, that can be expressed in these various ways, these two things are conferred on us by Christ and are both attained by us through faith. 
As a consequence, reason and the order of teaching demand that I begin to discuss both at this point. In other words, Calvin says, faith comes through the work of the Holy Spirit, and faith then uh, brings these two graces, this double grace, repentance and forgiveness of sins, or, to put it in more traditional language, justification and sanctification. So Calvin says, I need to talk about both things at this point. Calvin's very concerned about order and what follows what topic or doctrine in the Institutes. And uh, here he says it would really be necessary to talk about both at the same time, but uh, that's not possible. He has to choose uh, one topic in order before the other. So he says our immediate transition will be from faith to repentance. And uh, that uh, is what surprises us because uh, we would not think that Calvin uh, would have gone uh, in that direction. He says we could move from faith to justification or we could move from faith to sanctification, but we can't talk about both justification and sanctification at the same time. So Calvin's order is this, faith, sanctification, and then justification. That doesn't mean that sanctification leads to justification, but in Calvin's order, faith is going to come first. And then he will discuss sanctification and then justification. Calvin knows and certainly affirms that this is the theological order. Justification and then sanctification. Theologically, if he's thinking strictly theologically or um, in terms of logic, it would be faith, justification, sanctification. But for a reason uh, that he explains uh, to us, He's going to reverse that and deal with sanctification before he deals with justification. And what's the reason for that? Calvin is very concerned about something that he feels needs to be addressed uh, in the very order of the institutes here. Well, in the context in which Calvin was working, as soon as faith, justification by faith was mentioned, there were Roman Catholic objections uh, to that uh, doctrine that uh, that would then mean that salvation is by faith and is devoid of good works. And it is to Stand against that Catholic objection that Calvin, you might say, waste no time moving from faith to the good works, and then he'll come back to justification, which logically and theologically should precede sanctification. But in order to to forestall Catholic objections. People that would say, well, wait a minute, what about good works? Calvin says, I'm going to talk about good works first. And then we'll come back uh, to justification by faith alone, uh, which is the basis for those good works. The way Calvin puts it here is that actual holiness of life is not separated from free imputation of righteousness. That's 3.3.1. So he moves from faith to actual holiness of life in order to stress in a rather dramatic way that holiness is not separated from free imputation of righteousness, which is his way of expressing justification by faith alone here. Calvin says that justification 
is more lightly touched upon in 3, 3 through 10. Actually, it's not going to be until chapter 11 that he will get to the doctrine of justification by faith in its more complete sense. So we'll have a number of chapters on the Christian life, a number of chapters on sanctification, so that nobody can miss the point that the Christian is a person who lives a godly life, and then he comes to justification by faith alone. Justification was more lightly touched upon in these seven chapters because it was more to the point to understand first how little devoid of good works is the faith through which alone we obtain free righteousness by the mercy of God. And what is the nature of good works of the saints? Uh, that's 3.11.1. So finally, when he is finished with his treatment of sanctification, he says, this is the reason I've done it that way. So before he does it, after he does it, he explains that he is doing this in order to stress the fact that the Christian life, through the work of the Spirit, principal work of the Spirit is working faith in us so that we're justified by faith alone, that that doesn't mean that we then do whatever we want to. So, sanctification first, then justification as a kind of um, order of teaching. Here's another way we could diagram what uh, Calvin is, is doing. It's all the work of the Holy Spirit working uh, faith in us, and that faith leads to repentance, lifelong repentance, sanctification. And the Holy Spirit working faith in us leads us to the acceptance of the gift of God's forgiveness in Christ. And I would put a little arrow here showing that it is that forgiveness that then leads to this repentance. So it's a kind of a cyclical view that is expressed in Calvin's, Calvin's order. There is a work of the Holy Spirit out of which faith arises. Faith leads to repentance or regeneration, but is based on forgiveness and justification. Calvin will not allow the, the effects to become the grounds. He's not mixing this up theologically, so the effects, the good works, don't become the grounds for our acceptance. But he stresses the importance of the effects by dealing with that topic first uh, before he deals with justification to meet the criticism that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is just a, a fiction. It has no effect. It doesn't produce a change. After we have read through seven chapters of the great change it continues to produce in the Christian's life, uh, then uh, those uh, objections um, seem quite feeble. And Calvin is ready then to move to justification by faith. So theological order, faith, justification, sanctification. His order of teaching, for the reason that uh, I have just expressed, faith, sanctification, and justification. I think it's interesting uh, to see how Calvin moved these topics around in the various uh, editions of the Institutes. We use this chart. see that maybe this is 1536 and uh, here you have Calvin's treatment of justification and then way down here his treatment of uh, repentance 
or sanctification. And then here's a chapter on Christian freedom. But in 1539, he moves this topic here, so it precedes then for the first time his treatment of justification. So 1536, he did not uh, have this order. That was his first and youthful production of the Institutes. And I expect what has happened between 1536 and 1539, uh, when Calvin was in Geneva the first time, is that uh, people were saying, well, uh, does your teaching of justification mean that people can live any way they want to? So as a kind of a pastoral response to misunderstanding and questions that were being asked, uh, he reverses the order. And then that continues uh, right through uh, these editions uh, all the way down to uh, 1559 with repentance first and then justification by faith next. Uh, he brings in a section beginning in 1539 called the life of the Christian. That was the last part of the Institutes in 1539 and in these intermediate editions. But in 1559, he moved this up to follow his treatment of repentance, really to um, continue his treatment of repentance. That's what we're going to read next time, The Life of the Christian. That's a very wonderful uh, section in the Institutes of practical application of uh, sanctification in uh, very down-to-earth ways. And I think you'll enjoy that reading very much. Perhaps the most beloved section of the Institutes, sometimes called Calvin's Golden Booklet of the Christian Life, with a separate publishing history. You can still buy that, it's still in print, but don't think you're getting something that you don't already have, because all that is in the Institutes. It's not a, it's not another writing from Calvin, it's just uh, excerpted. Uh, from the Institutes 3, 6 through 10. So that gives us uh, something of uh, Calvin's um, concerns and uh, his, his care uh, in terms of um, location of, of teaching. Any questions on that before we go into his actual treatment of repentance? Notice again that the order stresses against the charge of the Roman Catholics that actual holiness of life is not separated from free imputation of righteousness. That's what he's concerned about. Okay, Calvin's treatment of sanctification and repentance. A brief uh, outline of 3, 3 through 10, first of all. Uh, what sanctification is. It's a true turning of our life to God. It's a short definition that we'll look at later in its fuller form. What sanctification is, or what repentance is, true turning of our life to God. And then Calvin uh, follows that with what it's not. Calvin often has this arrangement of um, antithesis in which he'll say this is, this is what is true and um, this is false. Not that Calvin loves polemics all that much, but he is concerned that it's important for the Christian pastor not only to set forth the truth, but to refute error. So what it is, what it's not, and uh, the two big points under what it's not are, one, perfectionism. It's not perfectionism, which was the teaching of the Anabaptists, or at least some of them, in the 16th century. And it's not sacramentalism. It's not just um, trying to make the sacramental system of the Catholic Church work. And uh, Calvin spends... Uh, considerable uh, effort in answering uh, these two 
false views of repentance. And then comes to the life of the Christian or the golden booklet of the Christian life, which is his practical description of what it means to to live a life of repentance. Relation of faith and repentance. Repentance follows faith, Calvin says. Faith is the principal work of the Spirit. And then as faith is worked in us, so is repentance. There have been discussions on whether faith comes before repentance or repentance comes before faith uh, in various uh, expressions of Reformed theology. Uh, But um, for Calvin, faith comes and repentance follows. Repentance is born of faith. Repentance cannot stand apart from faith. So we have the, the... central doctrine of faith, which we've already looked at, and from faith flows repentance. Even though they cannot be separated, they ought to be distinguished, Calvin says. So in one sense, you really can't separate, can't have faith without repentance, can't have repentance without faith. So these two works of God in us cannot be separated, but uh, they ought to be distinguished. He's uh, already um, talked about faith, and now he will talk about repentance. Now, this is this is all set in the context of the medieval doctrine that repentance is necessary for forgiveness. And, of course, uh, at every point, uh, Calvin uh, objects to this. He objects to the Catholic ideas that repentance or penance, as it was called in Catholic theology, comprising contrition, confession, and satisfaction, were necessary for forgiveness. Uh, God forgives, and out of Forgiveness of God flows repentance. Calvin says nothing is more miserable or deplorable for us uh, than this medieval doctrine. For one thing, there is never any assurance in it. There's never any certainty that the person has done what is required. Because there seems to be always more that has to be done can I ever know that I've done enough in order to deserve God's forgiveness? And Calvin says uh, there's nothing more miserable or deplorable uh, than that. Okay, let's uh, move to see uh, what Calvin says repentance is. And here is his definition. The turning of our life to God a turning that arises from a pure and earnest fear of him, and it consists in the mortification of our flesh and of the old man and in the vivification of the spirit, 3.3.5. Just like we did for the doctrine of uh, faith with the definition of faith, uh, let's do the same thing now with repentance in which we look at this definition in its various uh, parts. First, the true turning of our life to God. And uh, Calvin says that this arises from a pure and earnest fear of God. That's the true turning, which arises from a pure and earnest fear of God. Uh, Calvin does discuss, as you know from you're reading what is sometimes called legal repentance versus evangelical repentance. That is a distinction which he had uh, inherited from Melanchthon, 
and from Martin Bucer and from others. And this is what uh, he means uh, by that. There is a legal repentance or a repentance of the law which arises from fear and dread of God's judgment. In other words, there can be a kind of repentance which takes place because of uh, the fear of the judgment of God. And biblical examples of this would be the repentance of Cain after the murder of Abel, uh, the repentance of Saul, uh, the repentance of uh, Judas when he tries to return the money uh, because of the fear of judgment. Calvin describes this kind of repentance this way. Their repentance was nothing but a sort of entryway of hell. So this is not what he's talking about when he talks about true repentance. It's not just um, stark terror, like a kind of uh, outward uh, change uh, based on sheer terror of uh, what will happen uh, if I don't repent. But what true repentance is, what a true turning is, is not this turning, but a repentance uh, of the gospel. And there are biblical examples that Calvin gives here. Hezekiah, the Ninevites, David, Peter, the people at Pentecost, where you have um, a true turning. Calvin doesn't uh, deny that this true turning can be partly based upon fear of judgment. It's not totally based upon fear of judgment, like legal uh, repentance would be. Calvin speaks of the necessity of God's threats of, of judgment, for it would be vain for him gently to allure those who are asleep. So there are the threats of judgment that um, come in the Bible. And we read those and we are moved by those. And we need those, Calvin says. You can't, God can't uh, just whisper to us because we're, we're asleep and we need the shouts of, uh, of judgment. Uh, to awaken us. But there is more than that in repentance of the gospel. It is not simply fear of judgment. It is hatred of the sin itself, part of the judgment. And this is what will distinguish evangelical repentance from legal repentance. There is, there is a certain fear of God, as Calvin puts it uh, in the definition, it arises from a true and earnest fear of him, but it moves uh, on uh, to a hatred of sin. Uh, this is what Calvin says is meant by 2 Corinthians 7.10, the sorrow according to God. Uh, that's true repentance, the sorrow according to God, comes when we not only abhor punishment, but hate and abominate sin itself because we know that it displeases God. So when a person has moved beyond sheer fear of punishment to a hatred of the sin because it is contrary to the character of God, and because it displeases God, uh, then that is what is a true evangelical repentance. That is a true turning. Not only is the turning a true turning, but it's a total turning, Calvin says. Not only uh, in outward works, but in the soul itself. He doesn't need a perfectionism here because he will object to that in his um, 
rebuttal of the Anabaptists. So it's not a perfect turning, but it is a total turning. And Calvin says, not only in outward works, uh, but in the soul itself. In other words, there could be a kind of external turning, kind of uh, obvious repentance in which a person would um, change certain practices, but uh, that would not be repentance in the sense that Calvin is using the word unless it is in the soul itself. He talks about um, hypocrites who were actively striving after outward repentance in ceremonies. This is a reference to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah, where people who were trying to um, outwardly um, keep the ceremonies while they made no effort to undo the burden of injustice with which they bound the poor. Certain, certain outward works were set forth there, but there were other outward works that they failed to observe. So it was not a, a total turning, even in the outward works. But even more than the outward turning, or in addition to the outward turning, uh, there should be a turning in the soul itself. Men must cleanse away secret filth in order that an altar may be erected to God in the heart itself. That's what he means by a, a total turning, not just conduct, but uh, attitude. Altar erected in the heart itself. Not just cleaning up our actions, but loving and obeying God from the heart. As uh, repentance then inwardly extends to one's inmost soul, so it extends chronologically uh, throughout the extent of one's life. And uh, this is the third point. It's a, co a continual turning. True turning, total turning, continual turning, and Here's where Calvin uses one of the most um, impressive of his uh, figures concerning repentance. It is a race, a race of repentance, a race of repentance, which we are to run throughout our lives, 3, 3, 9. Calvin, um, at this point and a little later, this section will criticize uh, the Anabaptists and the Catholics. I think he particularly has the Jesuits in mind here for a kind of limited repentance. That repentance is something that is done once and for all, and then that's the that's the sum of the matter. Uh, repentance is is something that a, a Christian is never finished with uh, because. Um, we have a race of repentance. We run a race of repentance. In criticizing the Anabaptists and the Jesuits, Calvin says that giddy spirit which brings forth such fruits that it limits to a, a paltry few days a repentance that for the Christian ought to extend throughout his life. So we never stop repenting because we are running a race of repentance. And then the uh, last part of uh, his definition states that repentance, true turning, total turning, con continual turning to God, consists in the mortification of our flesh and in the vivification of the Spirit. We need to spend a, a little bit of time on these words. Now Calvin has 
found this same division in uh, the Losaka Munis of Philip Melanchthon, 1521. Uh, that was the first um, Protestant systematic theology. And uh, Calvin's first edition of the Institutes comes 15 years later, so Calvin is familiar with Melanchthon and uh, follows uh, Melanchthon uh, here. Uh, in talking about uh, the Christian life as consisting of mortification of our flesh and vivification of the spirit. Calvin doesn't mean to make these two separate categories. These are two ways of looking at the same experience. So we could say repentance equals at the same time mortification of our flesh and vivification of the spirit. By mortification, uh, he means this. In fact, he says we could we could sum it up this way: cease to do evil. Mortification means that we stop doing evil. Calvin says it is it is expressed clearly, although simply and rudely in accordance to the capacity of carnal folk. That's 338. It's one of the places in the Institutes where Calvin states, he does this quite often, uh, that uh, the Bible, God accommodates himself to our level of understanding. And um, we can understand these words, cease to do evil, stop doing evil. So Calvin sees the Bible here as baby talk again. I mean, even babies can understand usually stop <laughs> when parents uh, teach them the meaning of that word. It doesn't take long for babies to grasp the meaning of stop. Don't do that anymore. And so um, God speaks to us like that, too. That's mortification. Well, why is it called mortification? It's called mortification because by Christ's death, our old man is crucified. That is, our old sinful nature is crucified. Our common nature must die. So that's mortification. Our old self is crucified. And therefore, we must deny that old nature. It's not only that we say, well, yes, the old nature is crucified. But in true repentance, we deny the old nature as well. We refuse to accept its urging and its direction for our lives. Now, if you read carefully, you'll realize that, that this is not a curtailment of true humanity in Calvin. Calvin is not saying that we deny what we are as human beings, but uh, it is a denial of the sinful corruption of humanity. We don't become less human, but we become less sinful as a result of mortification. And Calvin realizes that uh, this, indeed, is a difficult uh, task uh, that is uh, before us. 338. He talks about, um, indeed, the very word mortification warns us how difficult it is to forget our previous nature. For from mortification we infer that we're, we are not conformed to the, to the fear of God and do not learn the rudiments of piety unless we are violently slain by the sword of the Spirit and brought to naught. As if God had declared that for us to be reckoned among his children, our common nature our common nature must die. So Calvin speaks of the, of the difficulty uh, of this. But um, it's important to 
recognize that what he is saying here is not that our humanity must die, but that our sinful desires and our sinful will must die. And that indeed is difficult. We're not our own. We are the Lord's. Calvin says uh, there is a twofold mortification. The former relates to those things around us. Uh, the other is inward. Now, I get this more from the commentaries than from the institutes. But uh, let me explain what he means here. Uh, there is an inward mortification. The Christian must die to self like Jesus did. Direct operations of the Holy Spirit on our lives producing self-denial. Of course, the inward mortification that Jesus experienced had nothing to do with sin, but it did have all to do with self-denial. And inward mortification for the Christian will lead to self-denial as well. That is, we, we put to death uh, these lusts, these desires. Um, we deny them uh, as they stand against the will of God in relation to uh, our attitude and relationship to God himself and also our relationship to other people. That's inward mortification, self-denial. And there will be a whole chapter on self-denial uh, in the next section where Calvin will spell this out in some detail. What does it mean to deny ourselves? But uh, there is also outward mortification. And uh, what Calvin means here is that through affliction, suffering, we're brought closer to Christ through the experiences of life in which um, we are brought um, into times of trial and times of suffering, those providential pressures uh, on, the, on the outward man will bring us closer to Christ and will develop our race of repentance. So inward mortification deals with the, the inward man and outward Mortification deals with the outward man or woman. And Calvin will have a, a whole chapter on this too. It's called Crossbearing. So as you read uh, the next section, it's a chapter on self-denial. It's one of the qualities of the Christian life, denying ourselves. But um, there's the outward mortification as well, which is taking up our cross and bearing the cross. We deny ourselves and we bear uh, the cross. Well, mortification is not an end in itself. It leads us to vivification. Certainly part of sanctification, but uh, it would be incomplete without vivification. Mortification means stop doing evil. And we've seen that it also has that uh, external component in which the experiences of life will uh, lead to cross-bearing as well as the inward emphasis of stop doing evil. But all that leads us to move on with Calvin to say we should do good. Yes. Jesus um, also had to deny himself. Um, how would it seems like all the things that he's done as far as denying himself would fit into outward mortification rather than inward because he doesn't have any sinful nature to subdue. He doesn't have sinful nature to subdue. That is is right. Um, but there's still a there's still a self denial. He doesn't. Um, he doesn't serve himself. He doesn't look after his comforts. He doesn't um, uh, 
to his own will, even uh, will that's not sinful. Uh, he, he gives way um, in all places of his life. Not my will, but thine be done, he says to the Father. And uh, to other people, we see the same thing. as He sacrifices comfort and what he could legitimately have claimed as a human being, not a sinful human being, but as a human being. There is um, self-denial. So I think there's this category, there's a place for self-denial, uh, even in a sinless person. Certainly, self-denial for us is complicated with our sinful desires. So we, we do not have simply our humanity, but we have our sinful humanity uh, to... Um, struggle against. So we are to turn from, from evil and uh, to do good. That's vivification. And by Christ's resurrection, uh, we are raised up into newness of life. Uh, by his, his crucifixion, we crucify our old nature and uh, then we deny that nature, and uh, by vivification, by Christ's resurrection, we're raised up into newness of life, and therefore we put on the new man. You can see that sanctification for Calvin is both what, what God does for us and what we do in response. There are things that we do. We stop doing evil. We put on the new man that um, come to justification uh, after sanctification, uh, we'll see that uh, that is entirely a gift of God. All we do is receive it. But in sanctification, there is both God's work and our work as well. Both things, that is, mortification and vivification, happen to us by our participation in Christ. So, there's a kind of theme that runs through these chapters, and that is union with Christ. It's not a separate category, but uh, you can see it uh, coming up uh, again and again. Uh, we die to sin by union with, with Christ, uh, because through his crucifixion, uh, we have put to death the old nature, and um, we, by his resurrection, are raised to newness of life. So, union with Christ is a very uh, cardinal uh, teaching of Calvin um, in many parts of the Institute, certainly here uh, in a supreme way. Yes, Julian? On the mortification, cease to do evil and do good. That's what we should do, but it's the vocation, if I understand correctly, that enables us to be that. I would say it's union with Christ that enables both. It, um, and it is the work of the Holy Spirit that unites us to Christ. So it's the Spirit's work. Faith is the instrument that the Spirit uses, which means simply receiving what God has done for us and what God is giving to us. And uh, consequently, we're united to Christ which then enables us to die to sin and to live to righteousness. Okay, let's move on to the last uh, two uh, points, and that is what um, sanctification or repentance uh, is not. It's not perfectionism, and it's not sacramentalism. And as I said when Calvin is dealing with perfectionism, he's thinking about some Anabaptist who believed that the sway of sin uh, is abolished in the believers. 3.3.11. We're to cease to do evil, Calvin says, but there's always within us that tendency, that desire that uh, old nature 
that will lead us to do evil if we do not resist and crucify the old nature. But there were some who taught that we no longer have to worry about that. The sway of sin is abolished in believers. But Calvin says, but there still remains in a regenerate man a fountain of evil continually producing irregular desires which allure and stimulate him to the commission of sin. So that fountain is there, and we're never free from it. Another image that Calvin uses in the same section, 3.3.10, is a smoldering cinder of evil, something that's still smoking, hasn't gone out. It's still there in the believer. Or the other image, uh, a fountain that's constantly um, turning up evil temptations and desires uh, within us. I found uh, this quotation in Cornelius Plantica. He said, corruption in 16th century Protestant confessional literature is a sort of diseased fruitfulness or a polluted streaming. These images are often used to introduce another. Our hearts are corrupt. They keep pumping out both malice and whitewash. We're not merely retail outlets for sin. We're megawatt generators of it. Well, that's, that's the picture of the human uh, sinful nature. But um, with the, the Christian, there is the mortification and the vivification, but not the elimination. Sin is still there. Calvin is not, uh, not talking about uh, those inclinations which God so engraved upon the character of man at his first creation, he again says, I'm not talking about natural, uh, God-given inclinations. I'm not talking about um, how we would be if Adam had not sinned, but only those bold and unbridled impulses which contend against God's control. So, there is it's always sin there in our hearts and in our lives. Those vestiges remain, Calvin says, to humble believers by the consciousness of our own weakness. God hasn't brought us yet into complete perfection. And one reason he hasn't is to keep us humble. We are united to Christ and there is given to us therefore the strength to cease to do evil and to do good but vestiges of sin remain and it's all too easy for us to uh, fall into sin uh, by faltering in our race of repentance it's a race that we have to run every day and every minute of every day and Uh, It's possible to stumble and even to fall down in that uh, race. And we're humbled by that. We realize that we're sinful. As the confession says, sin daily, word and thought and deed. And not only daily, but hourly. So, Calvin rejects... um, the idea of perfectionism. He speaks of concupiscence, which is another way of talking about uh, sinful nature. Uh, Calvin doesn't relate that, as we already saw, just to uh, sinful desires relating to our physical flesh. He desires related to the mind or the emotions. So concupiscence is used in a much broader sense in Calvin than in uh, medieval theology where it 
almost always was limited to sins of um, passion and lust. But uh, sin is still there, and it um, produces sin in us uh, when we uh, do not uh, resist it and allow it to have its uh, sway uh, in our lives. But uh, for Calvin, I think you can see in 3.3.12 that this, this sinful nature is sin itself. It's not just that it is, it is something there and it might flare up into sin. But uh, sinful desires, sinful feelings, the old man is sinful. And it's not uh, potentially sinful, but it is sinful. Calvin did not say this. Luther did, but Calvin would agree. Christian is always sinning, always repenting, and always forgiven. And I think that uh, that would be very much in line with what Calvin is saying here. There is within us sin. But uh, there is within us also uh, the power to overcome sin. But we will not uh, do that perfectly. So there is always within us or given to us uh, God's forgiveness. Calvin sees the the Christian life as a life of, of gradual growth. There is always sin in believers until they are divested of mortal bodies. That's 3.3.10. But there's also gradual growth. This restoration does not take place in one moment or one day or one year, but through continual and sometimes even slow advances God wipes out in his elect the corruptions of the flesh. So, gradual growth amid much weakness and failure, so much so that we can at times become very discouraged. But Calvin says, but when today outstrips yesterday, the effort is not lost. We should be discouraged if we're slipping back, but if we can make even just a little bit of progress so that today outstrips yesterday, uh, more mortification, more vivification today than there was yesterday, then uh, the effort is not lost. But perfection itself uh, will not uh, be reached until heaven. This warfare will end only at death. Our life is like a race course. We must not, therefore, become wearied after a short time, like him who stops short in the middle of the race course. But instead of this, death alone must put a period to our running. So we run until the end. So Calvin says, true repentance is not perfectionism, uh, neither uh, is it sacramentalism? And uh, we'll conclude uh, with this uh, today. Calvin will deal with sacramentalism, Catholic sacramentalism here in some uh, brief fashion and then in great detail in uh, Book 4 of the Institutes when he comes to the doctrine of the church. But his... The sarcasm, you might say, reaches new heights in this section as uh, he um, not only rejects but ridicules uh, the Catholic uh, sacramental teaching. He refutes the sacramental system with its various uh, parts, uh, penance, indulgences, purgatory, uh, all of this. Uh, comes within the scope of his discussion here and uh, much more in book four. Calvin says, 
Catholics teach that these things are necessary to attain forgiveness of sins, that is, penance, the indulgences, and even purgatory, which cleanses sin, which is left over after our death. They teach that these things are necessary to attain forgiveness of sins. If forgiveness of sins depends upon these conditions, which they attach to it, nothing is more miserable or deplorable for us. Because what does this mean except our repentance uh, is based upon doing many things, outward acts, and uh, there is no real assurance that comes uh, from this that we have done uh, what is uh, required. Uh, even, even the first step uh, is slippery. You know, the first step in penance is contrition. And uh, that means genuine sorrow uh, for sin. Luther came to the conclusion that no one could be really sure of the integrity of his own confession if we had to be sure that contrition was perfect and there was absolute and perfect sorrow for sin in order for the system to take its next step, uh, which would be uh, verbal confession and then satisfaction. Uh, that puts us in a long and difficult process of uh, from which we never will emerge. If forgiveness of sins depends on the sinner's sheer contrite sincerity, and if assurance of forgiveness depends on the certainty of one's sincerity, uh, then nobody can enjoy certainty or assurance. And indeed, that was the case in Catholic medieval theology. Assurance was not ever available to anyone except by a direct revelation of the Holy Spirit. Okay, we'll look next at uh, the life of the Christian in which we see uh, many of these same themes uh, dealt with in a very uh, practical and uh, moving way. Thanks for listening to this Worldwide Classroom Lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Looking for more resources? Access more than 1,000 downloadable articles, sermons, and more at resourcesforlifeonline.com. Search resources by keyword, author, or Bible reference. Grace-focused, Christ-centered resources, free to you. resourcesforlifeonline.com.